The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, and welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I am delighted today to have as my guest Michelle Simon. Michelle has a very unique combination of skills. She's a public health lawyer based in Northern California who has a master's degree in public health from Yale University and a law degree from the University of California. She is also the author of a terrific book called Appetite for Profit, How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Now, I think we should just jump right into the fire. And I have to ask you a question, and that is, we see a lot about food and obesity And whenever we try to address this topic from maybe changing or tweaking advertising or the food industry, we get this stern look that says, now, now, it's really all about personal responsibility. If you're eating junk food and if you're overweight, it's your own fault. How do you respond to that? Well, my response is there's no doubt that each of us bears responsibility for how we eat. The problem is that the food industry wants us to bear all that responsibility and want no responsibility to be placed on the way they market products, the way they ensure the government policies continue to benefit them and not public health. So really the question comes down to what sort of shared responsibility is there between individuals, the government, and corporations? And really it should be a shared responsibility. Mm -hmm. And for people like you and me who believe that there should be some sort of government regulation, just a little bit maybe might be nice, right? We hear comments like, well, you're the food police, or we don't want to live in a nanny state. You know, we want to make sure that people have the freedom to choose whatever they want. Right. There's a couple of responses to that. First of all, that line of thinking has an inherent assumption built into it that the government isn't already involved in our food choices. And virtually every bite you take from breakfast to your after-dinner dessert is in some way or other already regulated by industry. I don't mean in a nanny state way. I mean in a way that benefits the food industry much more than it benefits the general public. So what we're saying is we simply want to flip that formula so that the government ensures the best policies are in place to help people make better choices. And it's not about taking away choices. It's about ensuring that the default choices are what's best for people in terms of affordability and access. The other assumption built into that way of thinking is this idea that everyone has the same and equal access to all sorts of foods, this notion that, oh, we don't want to take away people's choices. Well, actually, we've already taken away most people's choices in this country in the sense that all they have available to them is the corner liquor store with Doritos and Coca-Cola or on the other corner McDonald's with the dollar menu meal. And that's no choice at all. So if we want to talk about about giving people a real choice, then let's make sure they have available truly healthy, fresh food so that everyone can make true choices. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when your book first came out, there was a press release and it described the reason why you wrote this book. And it really was related to 
this idea that, yeah, we have this terrible growing public health problem. We've got obesity, we've got diet-related diseases, and yet we don't really have good solutions. We sort of bite around the edges of the problem. We have Band-Aid approaches without really addressing the true cause. And that kind of gets down to the whole lobbying component of the food industry and the tactics that they use to really control government to limit consumer choices. Right. Well, there's really kind of two levels of industry operating that I wanted to describe in the book. And one is their PR campaign to make sure the conversation about this problem is really focused on the individual and personal responsibility and exercise and all the things to distract us from what really we know from a public health standpoint is the true heart of the matter, which is the unhealthy food supply and the ubiquitous marketing that goes on virtually 24-7. And then the other piece you mentioned is, is the lobbying. And so while on one hand we have the food industry that is determined to convince the American public and policymakers that they've got it covered, that they are on board with helping to fix this problem with the salads at McDonald's and the baked chicken at KFC and all of that nonsense. Meantime, they're lobbying, just like they have for decades, in Washington and in every state legislature around the country and increasingly in city councils that are trying to fix this problem from a true public policy standpoint. Industry is right there lobbying to make sure that real solutions get obstructed and don't get enacted. And that's really um, the hypocrisy that I wanted to expose in the book. Well, you do a terrific job doing that, and I love the way the book is broken up into different chapters that address the different issues. You know, the the idea of partnerships, I thought, was one that I wanted to talk with you. We could speak, of course, for hours on these issues, but partnerships have come to haunt me for many years. You know, when, when my kids were little and they were in school and we started selling branded items for to raise money for schools, and then... Thankfully, my children never were asked to participate in a McTeacher night, but I have seen schools get sucked into that lure of, hey, you know, go to McDonald's with your class, buy so many dollars worth of of food that we know contributes to obesity, and then the school will get a small percentage of those sales. And, of course, the schools are so hungry for any kind of support, they jump on board. Other kinds of partnerships, too, things like my own association, the American Dietetic Association, creating partnerships with corporations like Pepsi and Coke and Hershey's that has a terrible, for example, child labor concerns. So I don't really know how to address this when speaking to people who make decisions to allow these kinds of partnerships to exist. Yes, well, it's a huge problem, and you've pointed out many unfortunate examples of it, and you know, what we have is a form of co-optation, essentially, where you have members of the food industry that want to make sure that their messages get funneled through these legitimate organizations. So when an organization like the American Dietetic Association, which obviously is a voice for nutrition in this country, supposedly good nutrition, when they partner with a company like Hershey's, then Hershey's gets the stamp of approval by getting their name attached to the good name of the ADA. Now, unfortunately, a group like the ADA doesn't seem to see the flip side of that, which is that then their name actually gets tarnished by being associated with a chocolate company. But they seem to think the price tag is worth it, that by taking money, whatever negative 
thing that might come from it is worth it by taking the money. And how to address that? All I can say is it really takes enough people complaining about it. We had the um, physicians group that is complaining about an association with Coca-Cola. That hasn't changed yet, but the more members of these groups that band together and say, you know, we're going to renounce our memberships or we're not going to take this anymore, we're going to expose this, you know, let's hope that eventually that changes. I mean, we're already seeing shifts. It's taken a long time, but we're at least seeing some shifts at the university level uh, regarding tobacco money, so research departments not being willing to take tobacco money. It's mind-boggling that it's taken this long for even that shift to happen. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing also some new rules regarding pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession. So, you know, the more this sort of thing that happens in one field, it helps shift the uh, thinking in another field. And so and this is, of course, a problem across all industries when it comes to both university research money and also um, professional groups being co-opted by the very industries that many of these groups are trying to deal with the problems that are, that those industries cause. So I just think the more people speak out about them, try to embarrass these groups into no longer taking this money, it's really the best we can hope for. Yeah, and I think, too, it's important to ask the question, you know, how did we get here? Why have we allowed food corporations to profit from or take advantage of what should be publicly funded institutions? Right. Well, of course, it comes down to when it comes to the public schools. I mean, obviously, we have a, a tragedy of not having gotten our priorities straight. You know, we've got plenty of money to spend. We're just not spending it in the right places. And now, of course, we've got a situation where many governments are, are suffering from a lack of money due to the economic downturn. But, you know, there's been a problem with schools taking money from industry or selling sodas for vending machines for years, even before the economic downturn. Now things have just um, made that situation worse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it's it's really, a, a, <laughs> it sounds simple, unfortunately, not so simple to implement, but um, really we need to prioritize education and not say, well, we need a few cents here and there when, you know, really the majority of money that flows into vending machines goes into the pockets of Coca-Cola and not the school principals. You know, so I think it really comes down to priorities and taking a hard look at how we're spending our money and when it's really not worth taking money from corporations. What are we giving up in the process for selling our kids' health for some change in the vending machine? Mm-hmm. These are really hard discussions to have with schools when they're hurting. So, you know, we've got this K-12 through problem, which I've certainly experienced personally. And then we've also got the university issues, and then we've got associations and medical schools and you know, professional organizations. But one of the chapters that you have, Chapter 8, is co-opting the science. And you have a great quote here from attorney Carol Hogan advising food companies on to waste no time in hiring scientific experts. And she says, line them up and get them on retainer before others do. And so when we hear people say, you know, we want good science. We want it coming from universities. We want, you know, if we're going to make a claim about a certain food or a certain product, we want to make sure that we've got good science backing us up. And I'm really wondering, are we losing good science because so much of it is bought and paid for? Well, unfortunately, there, there definitely has been a infiltration, if you will, of industry into the scientific sphere. And, in fact, since I wrote the book, I wrote about the infiltration of PepsiCo into Yale, where I got my 
public health degree. Right. So um, just last year, there was a partnership of a sort formed between PepsiCo and, and Yale Medical School, where PepsiCo is paying for medical fellowships at Yale. And, you know, okay, I guess Yale gets some money out of the deal, but really the winner in that situation is PepsiCo because they get their name associated with Yale, and they get to pay essentially for what kind of science is PepsiCo going to want to see? Well, they're not really interested in science that says broccoli is going to save lives. They're interested in science that says broccoli chips might save lives. And so the point is that anytime a company who has a vested interest in processed food, which pretty much describes most of the major food companies out there, any science that comes from that is really going to be to, to benefit them, to benefit their bottom line, to you know come up with newfangled products. And that's you know, very twisted definition of science, right? The idea that economic interests should drive a scientific endeavor, to me, really devalues the whole notion of science. And not to say that all science is objective or, you know, has all lofty ideals, but clearly we want at least to start out with some measure of, of objectivity and some idea that we want to advance science in the name of public interest and not in the name of Pepsi-Cola. Exactly. And, you know, the the irony is that you also talk about Kelly Brownell, director of Yale Root Center for Food Policy and Obesity. In 2004, he was quoted as being skeptical of food industry collaboration. So, and in, in that particular instance, he was talking about tobacco collaboration. But here he is at an institution and heading up a center that looks at obesity, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? Yeah, to allow that partnership when he you know, had said in 2004 that it was not a good idea to have collaboration. Okay. Well, Kelly Bonnell has nothing to do with the partnership between PepsiCo and Yale. So these are two separate things going on. So, oh. Yeah, Kelly Bonnell has up the Rudd Center, which is funded by someone named Leslie Rudd, who is totally separate from the partnership of PepsiCo and Yale. So you know, I don't think we should, um, I mean, there's nothing he could do about it. This is the medical school forming this partnership with PepsiCo. So, but, but you're right to point out the connection, and that is a connection I made as well, which is PepsiCo knows darn well about what Kelly Bonnell and his center is up to, and they are actually trying to address the problems related to obesity by putting out reports on food marketing to children and advancing policy change, and so forth. So it may not be such a coincidence that PepsiCo chose Yale mm. to sort of counter the uh, positive things that are coming out of the Red Center with this, you know, PepsiCo-driven uh, research. You know, and what's so interesting is you see where I went with that. I saw Yale and Pepsi, and I thought immediately of Kelly Brownell Center that looks at obesity, and I connected that because it was affiliated with Yale, mm-hmm. With Pepsi, so if I'm making those connections, just think of what other consumers must be thinking. Right. No, it's it's a good point. I mean, and what that means is it diminishes the good work that is going on. Exactly. Yeah. What a shame. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Michelle Simon, and she is both an attorney and she also holds a master's degree in public health from Yale University. She's the author of a terrific book called Appetite for Profit, How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back. Michelle, I have to ask you about 
another form of partnership, and that is, you know, we know that children, all the surveys of food intake show us that children are not eating enough fruits and vegetables. And so one of the strategies is to put little cartoon characters, little labels of cartoon characters on fruits and vegetables. So maybe we'll have a SpongeBob SquarePants sticker on uh, a bunch of broccoli, or maybe we'll have another little cartoon character that children can relate to slapped on, say, an apple or an orange, and in hopes that that would improve fruit and vegetable intake. Do you see a problem with that if the if the end point is that children will eat more fruits and vegetables? Right. Well, it's interesting because there definitely is um, some debate about this notion of should we use marketing in a positive way, quote unquote, this idea that we should encourage children to eat healthy foods by um, associating them associating them with cartoon characters that children love. And I'm not a fan of that strategy, mainly because it because we know that marketing to young children is inherently deceptive, that children under the age of eight don't even have the cognitive capacity to understand what marketing is. So to me, that doesn't means it doesn't matter whether you're telling a child to want a Happy Meal or you're telling a child to eat SpongeBob carrots. It's deceptive either way. And we shouldn't really be relying on these sorts of tools to get kids to eat, right? I mean, it's really rather silly. If you go back in time, there was a time when we didn't need cartoon characters to eat. We didn't really need any kind of government program even to get people to eat healthfully. They just ate what was around and we got hungry and it was a rather simple matter. What has gotten in the way of all that, of course, is industry marketing and the ubiquitousness of the wrong kinds of foods everywhere you turn. And so my solution is not to try to counter do counter marketing or trick kids into eating right, but simply to get the food industry out of the way out of the way of parents who are really doing their level best to try to, most of them, to try to feed their kids right. And if we got industry out of the way, it shouldn't be such a battle. It should be that the only foods available are the ones that we should be eating and we don't have to counter any marketing messages because we would just eat when we were hungry. Right. And the healthy food would be the default without any kind of marketing lures getting kids to eat the wrong things. Sometimes we'll be having a discussion, especially in the media, and people have been very reluctant to say negative things about certain brands or certain specific foods because of these veggie libel laws. And since you're an attorney, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, does it put us at risk if we speak publicly against a certain product as being risky, either because of a food safety problem or because of a problem with probably causing obesity down the road, we we seem to be gagged sometimes of fearful of talking about products that could cause us harm and having good science behind us. Um, but still, we've got these libel laws and people are reluctant to speak out. Right. Well, this is a issue that came up a few years back, kind of in the wake of the um, the e. segment on Op- the Oprah show, right. right, where Howard Lyman, uh, former cattle rancher, went on and talked about mad cow and beef, and supposedly that caused the prices of beef to drop, and the Cattle Association got very upset, and so they sued Oprah on the basis of these this particular 
so-called veggie libel law in Texas, this idea that if you disparage a food, the, the agriculture sector that is the seller of that food is going to is going to sue you for disparagement for but you know she won that case technically really on a legal technicality unfortunately not on the first amendment but there's been a lot of analysis of these laws in the wake of that case to say there's no doubt these laws are unconstitutional in other words they infringe on our free speech to speak out mm-hmm. <laughs> about issues and particularly an issue as serious as food safety however some research also suggests, and it kind of is common sense, that these laws have had a chilling effect. And certainly not all of us have the resources to defend ourselves in court the way Oprah Winfrey did. But, you know, it's hard to know exactly how much of a chilling effect that's had. There's no doubt that every other media outlet saw that happen, and I mean, even Oprah herself has been skittish about covering the issue again. And so it's hard to know, you know, when things aren't covered, is that why? But, of course, that's the intent, is to have this chilling effect, to make media outlets afraid of saying bad things. But, you know, when things get so bad that they can't be ignored, like, you know, the last year's unbelievable food safety scandals between the, you know, salmonella and peanut butter and half a billion eggs recalled, I mean, so... Things are still getting out there. Maybe it takes that kind of a real crisis for it to get coverage. Mm-hmm. Certainly there's plenty of things that go on every day that don't. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, this is just part and parcel of the industry's attempt to control the message any way they can. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I really like about your book is that you have an appendix. It's a guide to industry groups and spin doctoring. And you really give people an idea of how words are twisted, and how different groups are formed to look nice and consumer-friendly, but really they're front groups for industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I thought that was important because it's so easy to be fooled. And oftentimes these groups get beds published, letters to the editor with these friendly-sounding names, and you don't. it's hard to know who's behind them. And the real poster child for this, and I actually spend a whole chapter deconstructing this organization, is the Center for Consumer Freedom. Right. Sounds great, right? Sounds like apple pie and um, the 4th of July, who could be against consumers and freedom. Well, in fact, this group is completely funded by the food, tobacco, and alcohol industries, as I call it, the, the trifecta of disease marketers. And they have had for years a, a multi-pronged campaign aimed against people like me, who they call food Nazis or any kind of name-calling they can come up with to try and distract people from the real issue. And they're pretty effective, at least in getting their message out there, because the media loves controversy, and that's what they're good at, is drumming up controversy, despite the fact that often none exists. I mean, there's certainly no controversy about things like diabetes and heart disease, and there may be some controversy about some of the obesity statistics that have come out from CDC but they will take any opportunity to twist information um, in favor of the food industry. And it's really important to know who these groups are. And there's, uh, you know, others of them that come out, new ones that come out all the time. There's a more recent one called something like the Healthy Weight Commitment. I can't even remember. The, their names are so Orwellian. Mm. But this one is something like the Healthy Weight Commitment Organization and sounds great. <laughs> it could be against healthy weight, commitment to healthy weight. But again, it, it's uh, it's an industry front group. 
Mm-hmm. So it's really important to know who's behind. And, you know, these days with the Internet, it's not that hard to really find out. So they usually don't hide who they are, at least on their websites. But they do sometimes hide who they are when they get op-eds published. And, you know, that's part of what I called out in the book is what are newspapers doing publishing op-eds and letters by these groups without even disclosing the money that's behind them. Michelle, we just have one minute left. Do you want to leave our listeners with a message that I neglected to bring forth? Yes. Well, the message is, is hope. And, you know, I, I, I bring a lot of bad news, but I don't like to leave it there. And so the good news is there's no shortage of positive programs going on, no shortage of opportunities for people to get involved with. So I also have a list of those types of projects, and of course there's new ones all the time. And so I always encourage people to find a program, a project that you want to get involved in, whether it's in your local school district, at the state level, national policy making, and jump in and to help make a difference. And save our democracy. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. Michelle Simon is a public health lawyer, and she's also the author of Appetite for Profit, How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back. And I want to emphasize that How to Fight Back is, is placed in bold on this cover. So there are wonderful strategies in here on how to get involved, as Michelle said. And I want to thank our listeners for being with us today and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Michelle, thank you so much for your time and your work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.